Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, let's have a podcast. Okay. Let's podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lynn and Jane Coaston. And we have a, a discussion that's been in the works for, for a little while, uh, but but we want to talk about the situation that has played out in Dallas, Texas, um, and sort of what the lessons are from that for policy, for politics. And Jane, can you, uh, you you've yeah. sort of covered this most. Like yeah. what, what happened exactly? So on September 6th, a man named Botham Shem Jean, who was working at Cooper in Dallas, um, originally from the island of St. Lucia, living in Dallas, Texas. He is at home in his apartment. He is a black man. And what happens from this point depends on who you believe. Now, a police officer, her name is Amber Geiger, In her telling of the story, and I want to be very clear that this is what she has said to the other police about what happened. She had gotten off work after a long shift. She says that she mistook Jean's apartment at the Southside Flats in the Cedars in Dallas for her own apartment, which was exactly one floor below Botham Chum Jean's apartment. She, according to her, enters the apartment. The door is according to her, again, unlocked. She sees a figure and, in her telling of it, believes that she is being burglarized. According to Geiger, she gives a warning and then shoots Botham Chen Jean and then turns on the lights, realizes, one, it's not my apartment, and two, I have shot a man, and then calls 911. So she was placed on administrative leave, But she was not arrested on the day of the shooting, which was September 6th. She turned herself in to authorities and charged with manslaughter on September 9th. And within an hour, she posted bond and was released. She has since moved out of the apartment building. And the Texas Rangers have taken over the case. And again, what she told the authorities was that she had mistakenly parked on the fourth floor instead of the third and inserted her key into Jean's door, which was slightly ajar. And then she gave verbal commands that were ignored and fired twice and killed Botham Chem Jean. Now, again, 
this is the information that we have from the Texas Rangers' affidavit. We don't know what actually happened. There are allegations that neighbors heard her pounding on the door yelling, let me in, let me in. But again, we don't know. When we talk about the facts of a police shooting, a lot of times those are the facts that are being given by the police officer. And it's also worth mentioning she was off duty. Part of the reason she's been charged with manslaughter was like this was not an officer-involved shooting. She was not working as a police officer at the time. She was supposedly arriving home. According to her, mistook his apartment for hers. Now, there are a lot of questions about that because people have taken pictures of the outside of his door, which had a red rug outside. Like, logic would dictate that you would be able to tell it was not your apartment, but that's her story. But I think the shooting, for a lot of people, have called it, you know, David French over at National Review called it the worst police shooting yet, which one can make arguments about what makes a police shooting that kills a man better or worse than another police shooting that kills a man. But that's the argument. And I think this case has really, and its handling of it so far by Texas authorities has really raised a lot of consternation. Um, There was a search warrant made for Botham Chemjean's apartment that uncovered that he had 10 grams of marijuana in the apartment, which was then breathlessly announced by a Fox affiliate on Twitter last week, which then led to the biggest ratio I think I've ever seen on a tweet in my life. I I do think it's actually, it's it's worth being clear about that though, because like sometimes something can happen and it like blows up. Right. right. And there's like a big counter narrative like, oh, this guy was swung and popped. But, but like that's not really what happened here. Right. Like somebody had the bright idea of executing this search warrant, found the marijuana, leaked it to a local TV station, which ran with it very ill-advisedly. Yes. And then everybody said. This was ill-advised. Like that's dumb. Right. Guys, but like, right? But, like, but so on a policy level, I, I feel like it's worth talking about the – behavior of the law enforcement professionals and institutions here because, like, we're already kind of going back and forth on whether or not this is getting labeled a police shooting, like, even in this episode. And the reason that that's the case is because there is both a kind of cultural narrative of, oh, a police officer kills a sometimes unarmed, almost always black almost always man right. under circumstances where in which it is in retrospect clear that the black man did not intend to attack the per, the police yes. officer and then there's outrage and questions of was that shooting justified was that shooting reasonable and you know either the criminal justice system tries to charge and usually fails the officer or they don't that cultural narrative is built around a legal superstructure that dictates the officer involved shootings are different from other kinds of homicides, that there are actual Supreme Court precedents that we've written about that dictate when it is reasonable to allow an officer to engage in justifiable homicide on duty. This does not have the benefit of that legal superstructure because it was not on duty. However, questions of responsibility and guilt and innocence in the minds of actual actors in the criminal justice system in terms of prosecutors, in terms of juries, in terms of fellow police officers are often kind of caught up with this idea of, oh, is there something about being an officer that allows you to use these legal concepts in a justified manner? Exactly. And I think that that's a point that a lot of commentators, particularly conservatives who are interested in this issue, have made 
Charles C.W. Cook made the point that implicit in the defenses of the officer is a terrible and dangerous conceit, namely that cops are in some way different from non-cops even when they are not acting as cops. That the idea that even if you are an off-duty officer, you are not at work, you are still in some way protected under the aegis of being a police officer. And you see that. There is video taken of when 911 arrives to help Botham Shemjean, and you see Officer Amber Geiger just walking around the hallway on the phone when, you know, hypothetically, if I shot someone who had entered my apartment, in general, they would not just let me just wander around for several—you know, she's not—she takes herself into custody three days later. That's not happening in a non-police case. And here's the reason that three days in particular is important is that in police union contracts, there is often a clause that allows a certain amount of cooling off time after an officer involved shooting before the officer is questioned by investigators. We actually saw this back during the Darren Wilson grand jury, where Wilson said in a comment that sticks in my mind, even if it may not stick in anyone else's, that like he knew that his account from 48 hours later was better than his account from immediately after because he knew that memory got clearer as time went on, which is not the way that memory no. works <laughs> at all, but makes perfect sense if you're reasoning backwards from, well, I know that I'm guaranteed a certain amount of time. Um, so between that, between the fact that she was talking about disobeying verbal commands, which of course makes no sense if you're not on duty as a police officer, right. much less if you're invading some man's home, but which does make sense if you look at the kind of list of tropes that police officers often use in officer-involved shootings. He refused to obey verbal commands. He was advancing toward me. He reached yeah. for his waistband. These are all things that police officers say to indicate, look, I knew this person posed a threat to my well-being, and therefore it was justified of me to take action and shoot him. So even if kind of there's a certain amount of outrage that you know, an off-duty police officer can be seen as the same as an on-duty police officer, it's worth questioning whether the actual actors in the criminal justice system think that that distinction is that strong, because Amber Geiger clearly doesn't. Well, and, and I mean, here to, to put a finer point on it, right, there's a legal question, right, which is, is a person who works as a officer of the Dallas Police Department a police officer when she is not acting in her capacity as a police right. officer, right? She's not on duty. She's not in uniform. She's not undertaking any kind of official work. She's not even like an unofficial bystander, right? Like you could imagine a situation in which an off-duty police officer happens to be on the scene of a robbery, right? right. And so decides, okay, now I'm going into cop mode. Right. But, like, even in her own telling, that's not what was happening. No. It's not like she, off-duty, walked past something and decided she had an obligation right. to investigate. She's just saying she messed up, right? So, in a legal sense, she's not a police officer when she does any of this. Right. Like, she's just a person. She has no authority. But, obviously, if you're just describing somebody, you'd be like, my friend Patrick, he's a police officer, right? Like, whether right. he's on duty or not at the moment, right? Like, it's a it's a script, right? And she was treated by officers of the Dallas Police Department as a colleague, right? Like, there is a way that police officers 
normally would treat a yeah. shooting suspect, like a, a home invasion shooting suspect. And there's a way that you would treat a police officer who had shot a suspect. And they treated her the way they would treat a police right. officer who had shot a suspect. Right, right. right. They recognized that some police work was going to have to happen around it, but she was not placed under arrest. She was there, free to roam. She was allowed to go. She turned herself in days later after other hires updated. it. Whereas if she had not been a police officer and had been like, well, here's a guy shot dead in his own home by somebody who came in from the outside, you'd just be arrested on the spot, right? And like, of course, you know, I mean, everybody knows this, right? But it's like, the police department is composed of human beings. They don't, you know, automatically execute the rules that are out there. And the way the law works in practice is that a police officer, even one who is ultimately charged, right, is in the moment treated with a, in a very different way than an ordinary citizen. Would. Right, which is to say she's treated as if being a police officer is not a job that you put on and take off. But I a think source that of that's— identity. Yeah, it, and I think that we've seen um, in states like Louisiana that have passed Blue Lives Matter laws that make it a hate crime to get kind of enact any violence against a police officer that treats being a police officer the same way you would treat being LGBT or non-white, which is an interesting perception of what it means to be a police officer, that this is actually something you are always, you when you are at a restaurant, you're a police officer. When you're asleep, you're a police officer. And, you know, something else that's interesting about this is that Amber Geiger is still a member of the Dallas Police Department because she has been placed on administrative leave, but she has not been fired. Now, police officers who've been involved in criminal investigations or the subject of criminal investigations have been fired before. And so there's been a lot of questions of why she has not yet been fired. And the response from the chief of police, Renee Hall, was that I can't do that because there are both local, state, and federal laws that prevent me from taking action. There are civil service laws we have to adhere to, to which a civil rights attorney named Justin Moore, who was interviewed um, by WFAA in Dallas, said, I was completely mystified because he said he had never heard of this. And so I think it's worth mentioning that while we've been having this discussion, Botham Chamjean died on September 6th. It is now of this recording September 21st. And technically, Amber Geiger is still a full police officer. Although, I mean, to be clear, what is unusual about this is not that she is a full police officer uh, and has been placed on administrative leave. What is unusual about this is that she has been charged with a crime at all. Exactly. You know, this speaks to the kind of weird liminal space this is in, where had she been on duty, it's entirely plausible that she would not have been charged. Exactly. That there would be some big grand jury or that they would just say— and eh, we're pretty sure this is justifiable. We're not going to risk losing in court. Uh, they may still lose in court, which is kind of why this question of culpability is big. But I'm so glad that you brought up the Louisiana Blue Lives Matter law because the Dallas Police Department is maybe the only police department in America that can say that it as a department has been targeted by an anti-police hate crime exactly. in the last two years because of the ambush that happened in early summer of last year. And so it's definitely worth thinking about, you know, when we talk about the group identity of police officers, it's not just a you're on my team, screw the other guy kind of partisanship. It's born of the sense that is drilled into police officers, certainly when they've actually, when they feel that they've actually been under attack, that the most important thing is to get home at the end of the day alive. Right. And that 
obviously says a lot about how they treat their work, but it also makes sense to understand it in the context of even if you're not wearing the uniform, you're still getting home at the end of the day alive. It ends up feeding into an observation of when it would be reasonable to use physical force on someone that ends up setting a weirdly low standard. And this is, I think, something that I've brought up on the podcast before that, you know, it's maybe not ideal that our public safety officials believe that their own survival is the imperative good rather than public safety. But in this particular case, it means that in a circumstance where you could feasibly say, look, she was acting as a civilian, but she's been hired as a police officer, which means that her skills of discernment are supposed to be especially good. Maybe we should be asking ourselves questions about why is it that not just a woman, but a police officer was so willing to pull her gun, even though it turned out she had made a mistake. We're instead having these questions of, well, was what she did reasonable given that she's a police officer and you know, she felt under threat. Like, is that somehow a lower standard that we can apply to her? Let's take a break and and dive back into that. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. You know, this does pose the the sort of general question of like, how do we want people to act when they perceive that they are under some kind of threat, right? Um, Yeah, I don't know. Somehow you're confused. You're in the wrong apartment. You see somebody like it's scary, right? So is the right thing to do anytime a scary situation arises to, like, immediately go shoot the person? Right. And this is where I felt that the National Rifle Association had an interesting perspective on this shooting. Not interesting. So I should say the NRA has been uh, 
targeted in the past for criticism, particularly around Philando Castile case, for not being zealous in guarding the rights of African-American gun owners. In this case, though— Yeah. So I would highly recommend everyone read Adam Serwer's work at The Atlantic, and he wrote a piece called The The NRA's Catch-22 for Black Men Shot by Police. And he includes this quote from NRA spokesperson Dana Loesch um, on NRA TV, where she says, I don't think there's any context that the actions would have been justified, but added, this could have been very different if Botham Jean had been, say, he was a law-abiding gun owner and he saw someone coming into his apartment. Now, which is a very interesting line of logic, because taken in a vacuum, you're like, okay, you know, that is a fair statement. It However, is consistent with the NRA is consistent sense with the that N- your home is your castle and you exactly, should be able to Exactly, exactly. That Texas does, in fact, have a strong stand-your-ground law. And I think you know, a lot of gun owners have made the point that someone walking into your home and screaming orders at you would generally result in aforementioned gun owners pulling out right. a gun. But let's take it out of a vacuum. Now, had that happened, had Botham Sham Jean shot Amber Geiger— who is an off-duty police officer who has entered his home. I'm not sure the NRA would be really standing up for his ability to have done so. I mean, we can imagine it going two ways, right? So, like, one situation is he owns a gun, he detects this home invader, so he pulls the gun, and she shoots him, right? right? In which case, I think, I mean, there would be— dispute on both sides, but I think there would be much more support for her than there is in the current reality, right? People would be saying, look, this guy was pointing a gun at her, right? Right. And and police groups everywhere, instead of what happened, which was like they were treating her nicely but are like now not officially supportive, right, would be saying, look— Police officer, you draw a gun on a police officer like you're going to get shot, right? Right. Then the other alternative is— Th- That's also where the marijuana thing would have been so much oh, more yeah. relevant. And, and even, even more the other way, right? I mean, if he had killed oh, yeah. her, yeah. Oh. right, and then there'd been an investigation and you have a dead cop, a guy saying— this cop entered my home for no reason. Like, you would legitimately want a search warrant under those yeah. circumstances. You would search his house. You would find this marijuana. So he'd be saying, she came into my house for no reason, so I had to shoot her. And I think it's pretty clear that the police department would see that she probably had some reason to be in there. This guy has drugs. He's killed a police officer. And, like, that's a crime, right? And the idea that the NRA— would be going to bat for, like, cop killers right. on some kind of your home is your castle grounds seems very dubious. I mean, it's interesting. In, in the 90s, when the politics of both policing and gun control were totally different, police organizations were very supportive of the Clinton administration's uh, gun control efforts. And it was, was it Wayne LaPierre back then? Yeah. Um, the NRA guy was, like, encouraging people to stockpile weapons specifically so they could shoot ATF agents. Yeah, he called— FBI agents jackbooted thugs, which led to uh, George H.W. Bush announcing that he would be rescinding his membership in the NRA. And it was super controversial. Like, this is around the time of the Oklahoma City bombing, and it's very much of this weird, like, anti-statist, the guns are the only thing standing between us and tyranny kind of rhetoric that you were hearing from the NRA at the time, which, you know, the NRA's shift from being a sportsman's organization to a 
what it is today happens around the, you know in the 1970s when the NRA leaves its offices in Washington DC and moves to Virginia but you see a dramatic shift take place since then and you can argue that it's because the jackbooted thugs are arguably under the control of Republicans now and you see a very different sense of sensibility about how the NRA thinks about both police and law enforcement in general So I think it's worth noting on the police side that there is and has for a while been a really big management labor split in law enforcement uh, that reflects itself among other ways in how they approach gun control. Because you will still hear police chiefs, law enforcement executives talking about how important gun control is, how bad guns are in communities, how unsafe they make their officers. But line officers are strongly opposed to gun control in the finding that Matt found. Yeah, I, I was really interested in this. I was reading recently this uh, Pew did a, a poll in 2017 in which they attempted to get like a scientifically valid sample of police officers in America and show issues on which police officers in the public disagree. And it was like mostly what you would expect, right? Like police officers are more politically conservative than the general public. Black police officers are less conservative than white police officers, but much more conservative than the general black public. Police officers have a different perception of what anti-police protests are about. But I I was intrigued to see that police officers are well to the right of the public, specifically on the gun regulation issue, uh, because that is – I mean, I actually did not see a poll of rank-and-file officers in 1997, but at least it's a change from how police organizations understood it. And it suggests that, you know, this is one of these things where once upon a time, I think in the 90s, probably police officers had more conservative views on certain kinds of issues, but then were also a significantly cross-pressured group. They were in labor unions. They had probably a more liberal view on gun control and gun regulation, generally a positive attitude toward the state at a time when conservatives were like really in on like black helicopter type conspiracy theories. And now you've seen support for police officers move much closer to the center of conservative political rhetoric than it used to be. And in alignment with that, like police officers adopting, I think, a more just generically conservative worldview. Yeah, I I definitely think that that story is accurate. And part of it is that the concerns of police unions do often overlap with certain policy issues. And therefore, it's possible to like get conservatives to adopt them, even if they wouldn't necessarily be on board with bread and butter. And state officials that have tried to restrict public sector labor unions have learned sometimes the hard way that you need to exempt police and well, fire I mean, this, this was like, right. I mean, Scott Walker's great innovation was like, it used to be that if you were a conservative and you wanted to take on public sector unions, that meant like incidentally also taking on police unions who would then be a powerful political tool against you. But then in Wisconsin, this was back 10 years ago now, they came up with the sort of brainstorm of like, what if we just exempted the police unions? Um, And the police unions, to their credit, at that time, like, tried to reject that deal. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they didn't say, like, yeah, this is amazing. They said, like, this is, this is dumb. Right. But, but obviously their members were anyway, not as fired up. Right. right. And, like, and after it actually happens, it's much harder to be like, the status quo is bad even though— Right. You They're know. not going to flip back. Right. Right. So this is worthwhile uh, thinking about the NRA in particular because what we've now—what we've kind of sketched out is a situation where you have 
organized groups representing the interests of labor in law enforcement in a way that is not a traditional labor interest, but much more of an interest group interest, seeing police officers as, you know, as, as... an identity on the group. Front, right, like a, an identity group that is on the front lines, literally, of a culture war, literally. Yeah. And the NRA, on the other hand, has totally become a culture war group. I mean, Dana Lesh, when not talking about why Botham Shemjean should have had a gun, is talking about why it's bad to have gender-neutral characters in children's television. Yep. Like, the extent to which the NRA has totally adopted culture war instead of, you know, policy proposals is really astounding. Right. So NRA leadership is now in the position of, you know, defending this identity group where the actual policies on which the two groups would agree are not that long. It's much it's much less about they are both concerned about cooling off periods. They are both concerned about discipline for police officers in the wake of an, uh, of a shooting than they are about we feel under attack by, like, the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. And therefore, we're going to stick together, which is not a way that you see interest groups, particularly unions, traditionally behave. Right. And I think that there are some who allege um, Josh Sugarman at the Violence Policy Center, he told NPR, you know, the NRA is a de facto trade association masquerading as a shooting sports foundation. And, you know, there were some numbers that came out yesterday from Open Secrets that the amount of money the NRA is bringing in has gone way down because the NRA does really, really well when there are concerns that someone's going to pass gun control legislation. And with Donald Trump, the chances of that happening are slim to none. Ergo, people are less likely to send money to the NRA, which is why the NRA is now very focused on whether or not Thomas the Tank Engine is advocating for black people, which is a thing that is actually happening. Yeah, I mean, as I've often said on this podcast, everybody's the victim in their own story. Indeed. The NRA has had to figure out a way to remain the victim. And police officers, meanwhile, like, have this – there's just this fundamental – disperception between the way that police officers see themselves and the way that the communities they police often see them in terms of who actually is the disempowered person in that relationship. Right. And I want to bring up something else interesting from a policy standpoint, because when I talk about these issues with conservatives, conservatives are like, well, what can I do about it? And I'm like, I have a list of things that you can talk about or do something about. And one of those things is the concept of qualified immunity. Yep. And, you know, I want to bring up there's a case in 2012 of a young man named Andrew Scott. He was playing video games with his girlfriend. He hears pounding at the door. He grabs his gun. He opens the door. He sees a man who does not identify themselves. Scott retreats. The man who is crouching at his door fires his own weapon. Andrew Scott is killed. And not only was the person who shot him, he was a police officer who is not only at the wrong house, he had no search warrant for the correct house, he had not turned on his emergency lights, and he did not identify himself as a police officer. This officer was never prosecuted, and the state decided that it was justified because police do not have a reason to or obligation to identify themselves. And when Scott's estate sued the officer, the court threw out the lawsuit. And basically, this concept of qualified immunity that was largely kind of created by the courts and requires victims of this case like Scott to also have to prove that the officer had no warrant, knocked on the wrong door, had no reason to be there. It also had to you know, fulfill these really 
high levels of evidence to prove that Andrew Scott should not have died. And this is not the only case of this. And so when you were talking about you know, how the NRA or others would have responded if Botham Shenjin would have had a gun, I just kept thinking about you know, qualified immunity, that in these cases, Botham Shenjin could have died in another means attempting to defend himself, and the officer who, for the same reason, would have been there for no reason, would have also not been punished. Now, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Amber Geiger. There's been a lot of, she's out on bail right now. She has indeed been charged with manslaughter. We're not sure where that's going to go. But I I just want to note, you know, when we talk about this case, and a lot of people refer to it, you know, as the worst police shooting yet, or this kind of an isolated incident that was so terrible. You know, the, the issue here is not that it's an isolated incident. It's the issue here is that it's all too common. The issue here is that police officers, you know, Reason Magazine has done a lot of terrific work on this. Police officers are shooting people's family pets when they show up at home and not being punished for it, or no-knock raids. A lot of people have done a lot of great reporting on SWAT no-knock raids of homes that they're, it's not the right house. They shoot people, they get away with it. And so I think that the extrapolating policy principles that we see in this case are that by the fact that we've started thinking of police as being this separate space, they live in a separate sphere from the communities in which they police, they are not subject to the same rules that you and I are. If I invade someone's home and someone shoots me, well, that's on me. And yet, as we see in this case, Amber Geiger is not being treated in that same way. All right, we got to take a break. Yeah, and let's, then let's, let's hold this let's, thought because yeah. I, I want to talk about some some crass politics. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard, but with the Hydro rower, finding time for a twenty minute full body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state of the art, low impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. 
Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So just to be clear with folks about what exactly qualified immunity is, qualified immunity is for civil suits. So you, the victim or the victim's family, cannot sue a government official if they're acting in their official capacity unless you can meet this super, super high bar. So that's what Jane's talking about is like they had to meet this absurdly high bar because they weren't allowed to say, look, I'm suing you for damages because you shot me. You don't typically get restitution for a crime committed against you by suing the person who committed the crime, right? Like, the only reason we're even talking about civil suits at all is because we already understand that there's this extremely frustrating criminal situation. Right. That when police officers engage in violence, that there is, you know, that there are these legally established higher standards. And even when there aren't, juries are extremely deferential to police officers who commit crimes and extremely prejudicial against people who shoot police officers. So a lot of these, like, no-knock SWAT raids, you'll still have people serving capital murder charges uh, because their self-defense claim, given that it was self-defense against someone who turned out to have a badge, was not that persuasive in the eyes of the jury. So this raises the question of, Yes, obviously there are kind of legal problems implicated here, but there's also a lot of, you know, when we're talking about juries, we're talking about the American public. And where does the American public actually feel the benefit of the doubt should lie in interactions like this? Yeah, and I'm struck by this because I I do think that people, people who I know sometimes tend to inhabit a bubble of their own worldview, and and that sometimes what? sometimes That's sometimes talk. these accusations of bubbling um, are mistaken. But I, I really think on the policing topic that like the Vox audience and some of my social peers do get a little like out of touch with oh, yeah. the, with the state of opinion. There was a great Pew poll. Uh, this was uh, also I think last year, um, but you know. After this topic of police abuses had been really well aired in the media, right? I mean, for for several years, a very ripe debate. Um, You know, and it shows that 73% of whites have warm feelings toward the police, along with 30% of African Americans and 55% of Hispanics. Among both whites and Hispanics, it's way more warm feelings than cold ones. Among African Americans, it's close to evenly split. Right. Looking just at Democrats, right, even among like white Democrats are less enthusiastic about the police than white Republicans. Uh, but it's still although a, even that is a fairly recent development. Yes, I believe, but right? it's a but it's a 71-16 uh, split. And again, I mean, critically, just for understanding both the politics and the rhetoric, right, among Hispanic Democrats, right, it's 51 warm to 17 cool, right? And I think it helps explain why Ted Cruz, who is facing a, I think, tougher than expected re-election battle, he obviously did not, like, go to bat for Amber Geiger, right? Which, like, nobody would do, right? Like, this particular set of facts is, like, much too crazy for anyone to defend, right? right? But, But Jane took advantage of this set of facts to say that this illustrates a much wider problem. Ted Cruz took advantage of Beto O'Rourke's comments on this case to say that O'Rourke's comments reflected a much wider problem of Democrats always wanting to blame police officers. And this is like – I mean this is a real thing in politics, right? Whenever anything comes up, there's like the thing that we're talking about and then there's the fact that we are talking about. Right. It's it's the Republicans pounce. How people are discussing it is of 
equal news value than the thing we're discussing. Right. And I'd also like to note that Ted Cruz did use the phrase, found himself murdered, which is the most wonderful use of passive voice I mean, I've it, ever it was, heard in my it life. Was, it was very awkward, but I mean, it's, I, I think like Ted Cruz has a clear, cogent point on this that like I think people need to grapple with, right, which is that Ted Cruz is saying that like this fact pattern is bad and that what this officer appears to have done looks bad. But that it is being opportunistically seized on by cop haters like Jane and Dara and Beto O'Rourke, <laughs> right, to advance an anti-police agenda that he rejects. And I myself do not reject the anti-police agenda. But I think it's like really important for liberals to understand that the public like really does. Like there, there's all these issues where you can make a credible case that like people are really just looking for a bold progressive message. And like reining in police departments, it's like I really like I really don't see it. You know, there was this incredible political hesitancy while the Ferguson protests were underway, you know, because it was seen among elected Democrats as too hot a topic to touch. And then at some point, like, the dam broke. And a lot of people who would have been very cautious, you know, six months or 18 months earlier, kind of, like, threw in that, like, they agree that, like, a big problem in America is police impunity. And, like, I feel like this was, like, an underrated, costly political stance, the Democrats. Right. To and, so, okay, I will let you say yeah. right and before I say, no, I think that's wrong. Yes. You know, I think that that's something, you know, Jeff Sessions yesterday um, in a speech said, uh, when policing went down, crime went up. There's a clear lesson here that if you want more shootings, more death, listen to the ACLU, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and groups that who don't know the reality of policing. Mm -hmm. If you want public safety, listen to the police professionals, which I think, you know, it's an interesting argument for many reasons. One is the idea that We've talked before on this podcast today about thinking of being a police officer is not a job but an identity. And the idea that, you know, you just don't understand the reality of policing. The few defenses I've seen of Amber Geiger's actions all are, well, she worked a really long shift and she was tired because that's the reality of policing. And we got to give her the benefit of the doubt because the reality of policing is very difficult. And I will acknowledge the reality of being a police officer is very difficult. I will not acknowledge that that in any way would be an argument that you could, you know, if Amber Geiger were a nurse and had worked a 15-hour shift and then came back to not her apartment and shot the person who lived there, I don't think she would be using the I was tired, that's the reality of nursing defense might not work quite as well. Right. Like This is what I was saying earlier about like discernment and having a lower legal standard as opposed to a higher one. But Matt, I think that you're making a good point, which is that the median on public opinion here is not where the median of Democratic public opinion is and that, you know, the Democratic Party has shifted to the left further from the median in recent years. And a point that is less well supported, which is that this is a winning issue for someone like Ted Cruz, for Republicans generally, because of that public opinion landscape. I think we always have to think about public opinion on a two dimensional plane, right? Where one dimension is like how people feel about it and the other is how strongly they feel about right. it. What Democrats did is they realized that they had built a coalitional model for their party and very important members of that coalition, i.e. 
black voters, primarily black urban voters represented by, you know, their politicians and by civil rights leaders, had a left position and a very high issue valence on this. And that in order to kind of preserve the coalition and to, you know, turn out the base, it was important for them to to move there. But that's actually what I question, right? That like when I look at data. I think that there is a presumption in Democratic Party politics, right? There's a siloing process Mm -hmm. and a division of labor process where it's like, okay, Latinos, immigration, dreamers, you know, this is like hierarchical thought of like, how am I going to, you know, like win votes in San Antonio, right? right? And that then with African-Americans, it has slotted into Right, like police brutality, criminal justice reform. And it is true that African Americans are more skeptical of police officers than white and Latino Americans. But even African Americans are not that skeptical. And it's like— what were the, You were saying that, like, white Democrats are 82-17. That's pretty overwhelming. Well, it's, we say, I mean, it, it's true that there's, there's a big gap, right? So it's like right. white people— love cops and black people have mixed feelings. Oh, okay, right, right. right. But that becomes a question where, you know, even when you're playing the preference intensity game, right, it's like, is this really an issue that overwhelmingly galvanizes African-American voters and therefore it makes a lot of sense to be visibly seen as talking about even though it may hazily risk you with, with some other people? Obviously, some people care a great deal. Like the protests in Ferguson were very real manifestation of like real um, anger and organizing work and like desire to get up and go do something about this. But I have not seen really like hard evidence that like this is the thing that is going to help mobilize black voters and certainly not the wider sense of like, voters of color, right? Right. Which is, um, these days, like, half or more Hispanic. And Latinos seem to have views of police that are closer to white views than to black views, which I think, again, like, it doesn't mean it's wrong to say we need to tackle qualified immunity. But, you know, it's important to understand like what it is you're doing and what your coalition really is. Right. I mean, this gets into what I think is a related question to the preference intensity question, which is whose preference intensity, right? Because like, In terms of Latino voters, the theory that immigration is the issue that Latino voters care about is, like, questionable. Yes. The theory that, like, you can reach Latino voters while de-emphasizing or running to the middle on immigration is much less questionable because the way the Democratic Party has decided to reach out to Latino voters is through separate third-party groups that are going to be extremely under-mobilized if candidates are not running to the left on immigration. So, like— the grass tops, grassroots disconnect may be very real in terms of like where actual right. Latino voters are, but you don't get to those voters directly unless you actually build that superstructure. With black voters, it's a little bit different, but there still is the question of like, okay, who are you empowering in the party structure to speak for those groups? And those are likely to be leaders who have more of a civil rights orientation than maybe the average black voter does. What I think the the kind of worry here is, is the reason that it's harder to reach out to voters than it is to reach out to, like, their activist representatives is that their activist representatives care a lot about politics and care a lot about their side winning, whereas a lot of people who are less oriented toward politics 
get issue fatigue a lot easier, right? If they see one side, like you see this with Latinos on immigration all the time, there are a lot of people who just are willing to blame both sides for things not getting done because they're not caught up in the day-to-day of who exactly is blocking which bill. They know that both parties have at various points promised to solve a problem and haven't done it. So if you're trying to prosecute a culture war, you are the party that is going to kind of garner that backlash of issue fatigue of like, why are you trying to divide us? Why are you even saying that cops and black people have to be on different sides? Can't we all just get along? Which is definitely a problem that Democrats would face in kind of continuing to talk about police impunity and that kind of thing, but also strikes me as maybe a problem for the Ted's Cruz of the world if you're going to treat a case where it really does look like public opinion is not super warm toward Amber Geiger as an opportunity to wave the blue flag. Right. And I think I want I want to raise a point here that, you know, contra to kind of what Matt said, I do really think that talking about police brutality can be an effective message. And I think we see that in two places, Chicago and Philadelphia. Chicago, uh, we're in the midst of the Laquan McDonald trial. Laquan McDonald, he was shot on October 20th in 2014 by police officer, Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke. And the dash cam video showed that McDonald was walking away from the police when he was shot. He was carrying a knife, but it was closed. And Van Dyke was charged with first-degree murder, and that trial is now ongoing. I believe the prosecution just rested. But in Chicago, I think you saw time and time again that, you know, the McDonald shooting and allegations made against the Chicago Police Department en masse really put a major dent in Rahm Emanuel's mayoral standing and in the standing of officials in that city in general. So let me let me let me let me reel back my claim. I I think you see right. So Philadelphia, you had a a reform district attorney win. And I think earlier when you saw Bill de Blasio come, uh, this was a a while back, but he was uh, sort of well behind and and won a mayoral primary. When you're talking about an overwhelmingly Democratic Party jurisdiction, right, that that also has a large African-American community, right? Because you're not going to draw a battle line with Rahm Emanuel about should abortion be legal, right? Because like that's not a a relevant, salient, local subject of debate. So I think like in – you're basically talking about like internal to Democratic Party politics, right? Right. This is clearly – I don't want to be here saying like nobody cares about this because clearly people do – I was struck in the Alabama Senate race, right? Doug Jones faced the slightly novel problem of a Democrat, a white Democrat had a realistic shot of winning, but he needed to mobilize black voters to have a shot, right? Roy Moore slightly underperformed a normal white Republican among white voters, but Jones still like needed that African-American base. And you know what I've heard from people who – tested ads and stuff with his campaign was that like his best ad at mobilizing African-Americans to come to the polls was this like really banal ad about education, right? Because that was in a very partisan context. That was like, why should you give a Democrat a shot to win? Like what – why should you care about this partisan election in a state that almost never has a meaningful partisan competition? And it was this like bland – 
issue message, right? And now, like, Chicago is totally different. Right. You but, know, if if Doug Jones is running in Chicago, Doug Jones is running the I prosecuted the people who bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church, and you're running that ad for hours a day. Well, who knows? Right. I mean, he would lose. But so right. here's the thing about Bill de Blasio, though, is de Blasio, while he came into office as a progressive and, you know, has has kind of made a big deal out of his progressive cred, particularly on marijuana, he's not necessarily like run hugely to the right on criminal justice stuff, but has certainly been more solicitous of police and more more enthusiastic toward cracking down on attacks against police than you would have expected when he got elected, which gets us back to the question of like the role of police officers themselves in all this, right? If the main power base that Democrats have wherein these intra-party fights can be hashed out is in urban city centers. And the people who are governing urban centers have literally to keep police officers on board in order to keep their city functioning. That is a substantial constraint on the exact politicians who in the party context would be most tempted to run to the left politically. Right. And I mean, I think the perception inside the de Blasio administration is that, like, it's a tough one, right? They know African-Americans are their base there, in part because he has a black wife, that they ran a reforming platform as a critic of Bloomberg-era stop and frisks. And police officers hate him. Mm -hmm. And they know that. And they know there's nothing they can even do about that. But they feel that it's crucial to maintain this kind of modus vivendi in which he keeps saying nice things about them and they keep trying hard to keep breaking low crime records. Because they really believe in the sort of police strike problem, right? right? And like there are these different ways you can frame it, right? There's like the Jeff Sessions way yeah. that it's like if you say nice things about the ACLU, then cities get dangerous. Right. And then right. there's the much more – you know, it's like cast aspersions on the motives of the police, but it's right. like if you don't Which, kiss I mean, their I feel like we've talked about this asses, on this podcast yes. before. But like, yeah, the, the kind of the police snowflake problem. I mean, right. but it, it, this – I wouldn't I wouldn't swear my life on it, but if I was giving a mayor political advice, it it seems to be the case that the level of police officer effort is a variable that has a meaningful impact on the incidence right. of homicide in a city and that trying to keep people excited about getting out there every day is in fact important, right? And the question is like is there a better way to do that. Right. And it, it's interesting when you see someone like Jeff Sessions essentially arguing that, like, if you get rid of like something like civil asset forfeiture, well, that just will take away from police desire to, you know, stop crimes right. from being committed. And I feel as if that argument, <laughs> there are some definite flaws there. But it's, you know, I think that it's important to note that a lot of this is like, this works politically. It does not work societally. <laughs> And those are two separate things. Right. I mean, this is like this is the hard question that I keep coming back to on both criminal justice and immigration when we're talking about line officers. And if folks have thoughts on this, either experientially or like academic research, please hit me up. Because the central question to me is how do you retain high morale among line agents 
while being free to pursue a public policy agenda that may or may not align with what they think you should do, because in theory, that's the way policy works, that the civil servants don't get to set the agenda, that, you know, elected politicians can set the agenda, when those line agents define their morale in terms of being able to do what they want and having a strong, you know, a robust identity and not being under threat and, for example, being able to protect their colleague even if she kills someone when off-duty, even if that's not technically something that they need as an individual professional interest. I don't know how you cut through that knot. Like, I don't I don't know how you tell people, no, actually, you should care about bread and butter stuff, not about how much time you get to cool down after shooting someone. But that appears to be the problem. And it's not something that's going to get resolved kind of even separate from the broader partisan politics of it until you can figure out a way to thread that. Yeah. And I think with the shooting and killing of Botham Shamjean, I, I just really want to quote here from Adam Server's piece in The Atlantic that, you know, if Jean had been armed, Geiger would have had a more plausible defense. If innocent, unarmed black men like Jean are shot, it's because they lack firearms. If innocent black men who are armed like Castile or Alton Sterling are shot, it's because they had a gun. Heads, you're dead. Tails, you're also dead. And I think that that's an important note here that this particular shooting, you know, we talked about how this works from the perspective of police, but from the perspective of African-Americans, the idea that, you know, we talked about driving while black or walking while black. You know, I wrote a piece last summer for the New York Times, actually, about a case in which someone was arrested for jaywalking in Florida where jaywalking is not a crime. I think that there's been people who say things about like, oh, you know, African-Americans just want to be able to ignore the law. And that's obviously not true. But it's this idea that there are certain laws that we see white people disobey with a plum. You know, you see someone pulling a U-turn on a street where they're not allowed to pull a U-turn. You see someone, you know, double parking somewhere. You see someone, you know, I remember finding the story of someone who talked about how the cops came to their house and they blew marijuana smoke in their face and told them to leave and the cops left. And this idea that for our white brothers and sisters, there are things they can do with respect to the law that African-Americans cannot. And now the Botham Shamjean case has introduced the idea that if you are alone in your own home and someone comes into your home, yells at you, and shoots you, that person will be out on bail and kind of wandering around being relatively free and easy, charged, of course, with manslaughter. But again, when we talked about police being an identity group, we don't know where that's going to go. And so I think that that, that's a really important point that I want to make, that this is now, you know, uh, Botham Shemjean's mother has spoken out about this case and talked about how, you know, Botham Shemjean's family's attorney has talked about, you know, where exactly can African-Americans be free if not in their own home? I that seems like a good question to end on. Indeed. I don't know that we can answer um, that. It, yes, if you can, uh, or if you can thread <laughs> the needle Daryl referred to before, uh, you know, let us know in the Weeds Facebook group. Sign up, of course, for the Weeds newsletter at vox.com slash weeds hyphen newsletter. Next week, watch out. Keep your eyes peeled for the return of Sarah Cliff to the Weeds. It's going to be amazing, monumental. Um, Shouldn't you be keeping your ears peeled? No. I don't like the use of the term peeled in general, but I don't believe that that's what we can do with ears. All right. Peel nothing. Don't do it with eyes either. We, 
We'll be back on Tuesday with Sarah.